Hi folks, welcome to the Epochs of the Lotus Eaters. Today I am joined by Bo, and we are going to be talking about the Seven Years' War. This is essentially a follow-up to what we've been previously talking about since the Duke of Marlborough, actually. Uh, this is what it's all been building to, I understand. Yeah, this is the big one. Yeah. Certainly the last episode about the War of the Austrian Succession was a build-up just because of all the main figures, really, are the mm. same people. Um, but the Seven Years' War has been described, Churchill described it as the First World War. Lots of historians have said it's because it truly is global. I mean, the War of the Spanish Succession and the War of the Austrian Succession, are there's elements to them, mm. certainly, that go out beyond Europe. But this really does, this certainly is a type of world war. Right, okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really big one. Uh, it lasts seven years, as the name suggests, but historians do say well, you that... can... Count it as sort of nine years. I was going to say, you know, historically, you know, the Hundred Years' War lasted more than a hundred years. Right. Yeah. So yeah. You know, just because something's called the X Years' War doesn't mean that that's how long it lasted. Yeah, yeah. The Hundred Years' War was what, like one hundred and twelve years or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, this uh, you can argue is more like nine years long. Um. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, some historians even sort of lump it in with the War of the Austrian Succession mm. as though it's sort of a continuous, one continuous thing. Well, I mean, if it's essentially got all the same players in it, then reasonably you could. I mean, the War of eighteen twelve, nearly all the events, important events, happen in eighteen fourteen. Mm. There mm. you go. Mm. <laughs> um, so nominally, at least, this is from seventeen fifty six to sixty three. Mm. So it seems that we're just picking up directly after the circumstances of the previous conflict, right? So uh, Prussia controls Silesia, Austria has managed to get itself back on its feet after being uh, attacked from all fronts by various powers. And I'm assuming that's where things kind of settled. But of course, nothing is decided, right? That's the problem. Yeah, so at the end of the War of the Austrian Succession, hmm. uh, the, the, the Peace of Arkham, uh, the Peace of uh, La Chapelle, um, everyone wasn't, no, hardly anyone was happy with that. Hmm. Really, no one was happy with it. Uh, it left a lot of things undecided, um, just like the Treaty of Versailles at yeah. the end of World War I. Um, so uh, the, the big thing, really, is the showdown between Britain and France, because they're now the two biggest players in the world, sort of easily. So this war, like the Spanish and Austrian succession wars, there's more than one theatre, but the main ones are India, Europe, and North America. Hmm. North America and the Caribbean. Um, in this, I'm going to mention, but not really talk much about the Indian one because um, that's what we covered in the video, really, all about Clive and Plassey. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in that, look that one up and you can find all the details where the British and the French <laughs> taking each other's stuff at Madras and Pondicherry and all sorts of things. Um, so uh, I want to concentrate mainly on Europe and North America. Um, I've got a quote here from Charles Oman about the origins of the war, um, where he said this, The Seven Years' War into which England was plunged in 1756, although Britain and France had already been having a bit of a cold war for nearly two years, really, in North American things by that point, mm. but anyway. Um, and it was while still under the imbecile guidance of the elder Pelham, and it was the most important struggle in which she had engaged since the days of the Spanish Armada, that's quite saying something, isn't it? Mm. 
1588, quite a while ago. It, def it definitely settled all the points which had been left undetermined by the Peace of Arkham and gave her the empire of the seas and the lion's share of the commerce of the world. Her hold on these gains was to be shaken in later wars, but never lost. Um, I say not never. It shows how old... Uh, <laughs> Shows how old Sir Charles Oman is writing. It's right at the beginning of the 20th century, he right, says that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, you know, after yeah. World War II, we did yeah. obviously lose the empire. Hmm. There's a, so actually, I'll just say that now. I, I, I'm going to have to do some quotes from Sir Charles Oman, as, as I went to do, and also from Will Durant, who's mm -hmm. also sort of firmly 20th century. And I like quotes like that. It's like watching a film from before the world went woke. Mm. You know, mm. it's actually normal. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of got a normal perspective on things. Mm. Um, so that's why I like to use sort of older, um, certainly pre-late 20th century or 21st century historians, because they all can't help but crowbar in their views, their modern, modern day views. The, there's, a, there's a lot of liberal moralizing in mm. late 20th century historians. And what, one, one thing as well I find is that the quality of writing and thought of the older historians is just better. Like, Will Durant is genuinely amazing. Mm. Like, I, I remember reading a passage on Will Durant explaining uh, just ancient philosophies, and he understood them as if he was a professor of philosophy. Mm. And I was really impressed, actually, because these things were, a lot of the time, these things are very difficult to get your head around. You've got to read an awful lot of things, and... You have to try and really, but he really got it. And I was like, okay, very impressive, actually. Um, and his writing style is just generally very pleasant to listen to mm. and, and hear. Mm. But, uh, but anyway. You're absolutely right. That's why I love the older guys yeah, yeah. from Gibbon, yeah. uh, uh, Oman, Carlisle, Churchill, mm. Will Durant, you know, all these, all these guys. Yeah. It's, it's just super. One, one of my favorites is Harold Lamb. Yeah. I love it Harold is. Lamb's description. Like his, we, we've got to do like Iron Men and Saints at some point. Uh, the Flame of Islam, because like his just his writing style is very rich. You feel like you're reading a novel, mm. and it's it like that, it's it? lovely. But anyway, even Tom Holland, who's among the best ones, probably my favourite living historian, mm. um, and his writing is very very good. Mm. For me, it's still not as good as something like Gibbon or Oman or Durant or somebody. It's um, but Tom Holland, you can you can tell that he's trying to hark back to that older kind of historian definitely. who's prepared to enrich the world with a bit of flowery prose, which I think is perfect. You know, I'm, I'm tired of this sort of like scientific modern historian. I don't I don't want that. I want to be drawn into the story. Yeah. I want heroes and villains. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's what helps me remember what happened. Yeah, anyway. tell me a story. Yeah. Um, I'll read another quick paragraph here for a moment, just about basically on the origins of the war. He wrote, The Seven Years' War, like the War of the Austrian Succession, had two sides, the colonial and the European. Two theatres, he means there, really. Yeah. Um, in 1756, as in 1742, England, while contending with her own objects beyond the seas, was also subsidising a powerful continental ally. So we spend lots of money, just like in the Napoleonic yeah. era. We've got all the money, really, so we can pay for other people to do a lot of fighting on our behalf. Um, so uh, we're subsidising a powerful continental ally who, who had his own interests to serve in order to distract the attention of France from, from the more distant struggle. So one of the grander strategies we had was the idea that if we can force France to sort of spend all its time and energy and money in a European war, 
it will just leave the rest of the world hmm. open for the Royal Navy to go berserk, which, for us to steal all their stuff, basically. Which is fairly reasonable. And it was a very deliberate ploy from hmm. us. So the Prime Minister in this is Pitt the Elder, hmm. First Lord Chatham, First Earl Chatham. Um, so he becomes, uh, well, yeah, the Prime Minister. Is removed for a while, then comes back and is in control for the rest of it, basically. And it very much is very deliberately his his stratagem is to do that, um, because we also we knew that France, so if we knew that was the way France was inclined anyway, hmm. that they wanted at all costs to try and take Belgium still, or um, parts of the Netherlands. That that was really important, and. Uh, uh, but there is actually a reversal of the, the usual alliance structures in this. That's the big thing. We'll get to that in a moment if I finish the quote from, from Oman on the origins of it. He said, The new war resembled the old in another respect. In each case, it's, it was the colonial quarrel which first came to the front. The European strife was a later development. The causes which provoked the Seven Years' War were to be found both in America and in India. In both of these quarrels, the representatives of England and of France came to blows before the mother countries had resolved on war. The quarrel was the result of natural causes which made it inevitable and not the deliberate work of the timid Newcastle or the selfish Louis XV. That's according to Emma. So that is a bit of opinion there. Sure, but, um, but it's it, probably a well-informed opinion. It's very evident that you've got two burgeoning world powers that are competing over the new world, the new territory. I mean, France has a lot of the new world, nominally at least at this point. Britain obviously has the 13 colonies and probably wants more. So, of course, events are going to drive in this direction. Mm. It's very similar to sort of Roman Carthage fighting over Sicily. It doesn't require either one of them to have an, a Machiavellian commander saying, right, we're going to you know, provoke this. Things are going to, events are going to provoke themselves. Mm. So this war is so important because the sort of the state of affairs before and after it hmm. are chalk and cheese. Yeah. So before it, Britain and France are sort of fairly genuinely rivals, hmm. and after Britain is dominant. Hmm. France is uh, well bankrupt, very very nearly bankrupt. Spoiler alert. And in fact, yeah, and in fact, a real spoiler alert here is that a lot of historians say. Uh, rightly, um, that it's really this war that leads directly to uh, the sort of cascading of events, which leads to the collapse of France and the French Revolution. Hmm. So the weakening of the French monarchy. Big time. Hmm. I mean, so it's, every, a lot of people might know anyway that it's where Britain, after this war, forced the American colonists to pay for it in some ways. Yeah. Because it was so expensive. Wasn't it like a 2% stamp tax or something? There was all sorts of taxes, yeah. Right. Yeah, the stamp, stamp tax mm. is just one of them. But all sorts of different taxes. Tax on tea. Mm. Um, How dare they? So it, it very nearly bankrupt Britain. Well, it was so expensive that we were forced into sort of extraordinary measures. Mm. That was for us that ended up winning it. Ended with ended with a global empire of commerce. Mm. It was still that expensive. So to the loser... It was ruinous. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
So there's two two main portions of this. Like I say, I won't really go into India too much, although I'll mention it at the end, who gets what and how it all ended. Uh, but the two main theatres is in Europe. So if I sort of just paint the picture there, then I want to first go over and talk all in detail about America, mm-hmm. because also chronologically it kicks off first there as well. Mm. Then I'll come back to Europe and we'll finish, finish it there. Um, so as I mentioned, the usual alliances are all turned on their head. Usually you can totally count on the Habsburgs and the French to be against each other, mm. and therefore by default we're with the Habsburgs, and Spain and France to be together. And so a lot of that has changed this time, because where we have Pitt the Elder, we, our calculation is this, or in the mind of Pitt the Elder, who actually ends up being more than a prime minister. He gathers, because uh, we've said in other times that mm. there isn't really a prime minister as such. There's just a preeminent minister. It's mm. not as we have now, where there's you know, the head of government and prime minister, and then he has a cabinet with various heads of department. Now, you, if one guy can sort of dominate all of government, he does mm. quite often. So that's what Pitt the Elder is sort of doing, is that he brings into his own hands all, like, all the purse strings, all the executive functions, nearly, um, all foreign policy stuff, all of it. It all comes out of his mind. Now, that garners him lots and lots of political enemies, but while it works, it works. But if you have a competent man doing it, then yeah. great. The the great man has arrived at the right time. Yeah. Brilliant. Let's let's let him do his work. And like a lot of things, like the director of a, a movie or the writer of a book, you the, the best thing pardon me, the absolute best thing is to have one mind, yeah, one vision doing it. Yeah. Um, lots of things, if you let a committee decide, it's just the end result is just naff. Yeah. Or right? chaos. Yeah, okay, right, yeah. Um, so anyway, Pitt the Elder, William Pitt, later the Earl of Chatham is sort of running the show. And his idea, his view, is that uh, oh, I don't, we don't really care anymore about the power struggle between even Russia and the Habsburgs and the French and everything. All we care about is that we beat the French. Because if we can beat the French, like in the whole world, yeah. if we can beat them then nothing can ever touch us ever again. That's his thinking. And it's not wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, that's not, that's it's, not at all irrational. It's like, why do we care about sort of the delicate balance within the Holy Roman Empire? All we need is to defeat France, sort of, absolutely. Yeah, if, and, and the rest is just child's play. Yeah, the if, rest will all come. If, if we have naval supremacy over all of Europe, which we ended up with, then we don't have a problem. You hit the nail on the head because the key part of that yeah. is naval supremacy. Yeah. Big part of it. It's like we, uh, he, he say, he's sort of saying, I don't care if, uh, well, not, not that he doesn't care, but it's not as important whether it's... Uh, it's not mission critical, right? Like there, 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 there are certain things. This has to be in, a, you know, in our control or else everything else is put into doubt. And Britain being an island... It's fairly straightforward that you have to have the better navy whenever the question arises. Mm. It just has to be the case. And so it's, it's literally mission critical for us to have naval supremacy if mm. we want to be a competitive power in this particular game. Yeah, no, absolutely that, exactly that. Uh, and so it, it's funny, it, interesting, 
that it takes until the 1750s for us to sort of truly grasp that, realise mm. that. I mean, of course, it's always been known on some level, whoever's got the biggest, greatest navy is a great advantage, but it's where it sort of crystallises in the mind of, mm. of Pitt. Um, that... I wonder if this is a consequence of sort of this being the age of sail, though. Uh, you know, prior to that, were navies that important in the Middle Ages? seems to be just a way of getting around prior to that. Well, yeah, it becomes important in sort of the late Tudor age, yeah. doesn't it? Like by yeah, the yeah, age yeah. of by, Elizabeth. By the Spanish Armada. But yeah, this, this requires in... the discovery of the new world, right? This right, requires yeah. a reason to, to build massive galleons that can sail for 20,000 miles or whatever. If you haven't got that, you just need to cross the English Channel. Hmm. What difference does uh, yeah, it make, you know? Yeah. If you're a maritime power or not, like our main thing we needed was to be able to cross the channel. Yeah. Uh, but if you were someone like, you know, Genoa yeah. or Venice or something. But yeah. So by this point now, Pitt the Elder realises that um, it doesn't matter who dominates Europe necessarily, whether it's Prussia, Austria, mm. Russia, France. Um, none of them have got a great navy, well, other than France. Yeah. And I, so, I was going. I was going to say that because the, the way you're saying it, well, if it's Prussia, Austria, Russia, who cares? Yeah, why would you care? They're all land powers. Like they can race you know, two hundred thousand men, fantastic soldiers, and okay, great, but they can't walk through the ocean. Mm. So that's not our problem. Mm. So when the war starts, the numbers are something like this, and you can argue about this, and mm. Navy history nerds do. Um, mm. Britain had something in the order of one hundred and thirty ship of the line. France had something like 75, 80. So we already were sort of winning that arms race. But what Chatham's whole strategy is that we want them to have none, if, poss if possible. We'd like to just annihilate their ability at sea. I approve of this strategy. And then they can do what they want within reason in <laughs> Europe because yeah. um, it doesn't matter. We will always be way more powerful than them because... Another thing to say is not just that, um, you know, they can't invade Britain, mm. but also they, what that really means is that they won't have a, a global empire. Yeah. We will dominate commerce yeah. everywhere we go. It will just be a matter of time until we mop up every last one of their colonies. And this is exactly the problem that Napoleon had. He was like, oh, I'm going to make sure that Britain can't trade at all with continental Europe. Pfft, we don't care. We're yeah. literally taking the commerce of the world back to London. Yeah. Yeah. You want to buy things off us. We yeah. don't need your stuff. <laughs> yeah, <think> so. <laughs> yeah. No more croissants for you. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and the same goes for Spain, Portugal, and the Dutch as well. Yeah. If we dominate the seas, it's just yeah. we, we can at, at leisure really take yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, um, so that's sort of the grand idea. Um, so without going into India, um, the biggest thing is in North America. So let's let's start on that. I'll talk about the. I'll put a map up in post as normal. Um, you can see that the great struggle in the North American continent. Uh, Spain is already n not as important, not that important in North America. But on the map, you can see there's the thirteen colonies mm. that we control. Um, although they're largely autonomous, but still they're they're loyal to the Parliament and the Crown. And the French control both 
Canada, or what becomes Canada anyway, and also down in New Orleans, the mouth of the uh, Mississippi uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. So I've, I've spent a long time thinking about this sort of thing because I found this fascinating. Because one of, we, we, when, we, when we pull up a map, you'll see vast swathes of like this, you know, the center of the American continent that will be blue because it'll be, oh, this is French. But actually, what that really means is France has a series of poorly manned forts going up various rhythm, river systems. And if you actually were to do like a heat map of population density, that would be virtually gray. There'd be virtually no one there. Uh, whereas like the 13 colonies had something like you know, 3 million people in, which is a lot for that day and age. So that would be quite intensely red for Britain, right? Or uh, you know, English colonies, whatever. And then like France has some population in uh, Canada now, sort of French Canada. But again, vast swathes of uninhabited wilderness. Um, so where, where, you know, when, when we put up the map and you can see all of this blue, it's not really all blue. And there are going to be like Native American tribes there who have never heard of a Frenchman, you know. And we're like, a, a what? Sorry, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. This is what, the King Who. What? Are, what are you saying? You know, I'm just going to go hunt some buffalo. You know, like they. So yeah, it's it's kind of deceptive when you see it on the map. Mm. I find. Mm. Now that's definitely uh, true. All the things you mentioned there are definitely the case. Um, so the there's the two. So their grand strategy when they look at the map to try and defeat us is. That they control New Orleans, um, then they just called the, that big chunk of America, Louisiana. And you can sail up the Mississippi a long way mm. into, into the interior of America. And then you can also, from there, also sail all the way up to, through the Ohio River. Um, now, on the northern portion, there's the St. Lawrence River. And any Canadians out there and anyone who lives up in New England and that part will know it very well. But it's sort of, that's of key importance is the St. Lawrence River. And you immediately see it on a map. Um, it sort of separates America from, from Canada. They called it New France. Yep. It was sort of firmly, it was firmly French. Um, later, we call it Upper and Lower Canada. And anyway, the St. Lawrence River is sort of the main thing because it goes past Quebec and you can eventually get down to Montreal. And then you get into the Great Lake regions, mm -hmm. and from the Great Lake regions, you can get down into more or less sort of the Ohio Valley, through you go down through sort of Lake Champlain and the the, the Champlain Corridor through various waterways. Mm. And anyway, it's sort of possible to link up all the way from Canada and the St. Lawrence down through the Ohio Valley, and you can come up the Mississippi and the Ohio River, and so that and so you'll see on the map exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. The French idea is to link up those two things with a string of faults, as you say, essentially penning the 13 colonies into, firmly into the eastern seaboard of America, or what was to become the United States. So that's their idea. And then they can, after that, at leisure, take everything westwards. That was their thinking. That's very optimistic. But as you say... Well, it's massively optimistic, yes. Yeah, as you say, there's, there's just not enough Frenchmen out there to no. sort of make that a reality. And um, there's nothing to stop the, 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 the British colonists from sort of kicking back against that. Mm. 
Especially mm. as the British colours did have a large population mm. out there, actually. Mm. It was very concentrated as well mm. on good land. Mm. You know, cause, I mean, uh, uh, again, another, uh, another problem that the French have is actually there are, f- like, what they claim to own has very few natural borders. Like, you mm. can, okay, we've got a string of forts. Okay, but there is so much space that you could march an army between them and you wouldn't know, you know? It's like, there's just, it's huge. And so, I, again, massively over-optimistic, in my opinion. That was one of the problems, that there was no real boundaries between mm. who owned what. Mm. Like the French would say, well, we've been up, the, we went up this river, our trappers and things went up this river a generation before you guys, therefore we own everything here. It's like, what are you talking about? And <laughs> I don't, I don't think that. so. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the Native Americans, the First Nation peoples? Mm. They're sort of largely left out of this in mm. all sorts of ways. They fight on our side our side and their side and swap sides and try to be independent and all sorts of things. In fact, the Americans call the North American theatre of the Seven Years' War the French and Indian War. Mm. That's what they call it. Um, so, yeah, di- different Indian tribes side with us and with the French. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot. There's a big element of that to it. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can read another paragraph from Oman on this, on the causes of, of it, he says, The cause was the want of any definite boundary between the settlements of the two nations. It was the ambition of the English colonists to, colonists to push west, westward from Pennsylvania and, Virgin, and Virginia and gradually to colonise all the wastelands sparsely inhabited by savage Indian tribes which lay between them and the Mississippi. But the French had another and no less ambitious scheme. Besides their dominions in Canada, they possessed another colony on the mouth of the Mississippi round the town of New Orleans. They claimed that this territory of Louisiana stretched up to the headwaters of the Great River and it was their object, object to connect it with Canada by a string of forts placed along the Mississippi and its tributary, the Ohio. If they could have carried out this gigantic and wide-stretching plan, they would have shut in the English colonies between the Alchene Mountains and the sea. I may have pronounced that. Allegheny. I think it's pronounced Allegheny. Allegheny. People in the American people can correct me on that. The Allegheny Mountains and the sea and prevented them from extending into the interior of the continent. The weak point of the plan was that the French were far too few in numbers to execute any such project. Uh, they were counted, uh, uh, though they counted among them many hardy backwoodsmen and fur traders who had explored all the waterways of the West, they could not back these pioneers up with solid masses of population. There were not more than 180,000 French emigrants in America, while the English colonies boasted at this time, nearly 2 million sturdy settlers. And it depends when you're talking, because I've seen those numbers quoted vastly different. Yeah, I have I've heard well. it said that there's only 60,000 French and 1 million British. I've heard and then, higher. And well. I, yeah, yeah, and I've seen it higher. That's why I said 3 million. Right. So that, seen, that's yeah. what I've seen quoted more regularly than the others. Right. But either way, you're talking about millions of Englishmen yeah. who live in the New World, and it live in concentrated, contiguous area as well. Like, it's... Like it's not it's not a vast amount of space that they live in. I mean, it's, it's big, obviously, mm. um, but it's not like Louisiana, frankly, which is mm. just colossal and empty. Plus, different parts of the United States are more or less difficult to make work for you. Yeah, 
So, for example, in in Canada, um, obviously in the winter, it's it's terribly cold. The ground freezes. The, the St. Lawrence freezes, mm. or it did back then. The ground has got sort of almost permafrost sometimes. Depends how far north you go. But um, whereas places like um, Virginia and the Carolinas are lovely, they're yeah. perfect. Places like Massachusetts are yeah. brilliant. The the crop just springs out of the ground, virtually unbidden. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not all perfect. Sort of famously, sure, sure. Vermont is difficult farmland. But yeah, and then the further south you go, somewhere like New Orleans, mm. it's sort of swamp or Florida. It's very swampy. Yeah. It's sort of it's 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 too humid and it, hot. If you're so, playing a game of civilization, you would want where the English had settled, right? Not yeah. where the French had settled. Yeah, absolutely. Places like New York State, Massachusetts, yeah. Virginia. It's yeah, it's all, prime. All of that area, that band is is lo- lovely. Um, temperate sort of areas it's mm. a mediterranean sort of heat to watch the full video please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com